If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. Brian McClanahan Show, episode 728. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N. McClanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook. Forgotten Founders free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Do not unsubscribe from that email list. I do send emails out about four times a week, sometimes more. They're infotainment, and they also include great coupons. And so if you're interested in my work at McClanahan Academy, which you should be because it helps keep this podcast free of charge, but also you get awesome content like I'm going to talk about today, you get the coupons, right? If you want my latest class reading Jefferson Davis, you have a coupon till August. October 31st, 2022, $60 off if you use the coupon code DAVIS. So just go over there to grab that coupon if you're listening to the podcast and you want to get it. And hopefully you will after this uh, particular episode because I'm going to talk about Jefferson Davis today. Um, it's a fantastic class and all the classes there are really good. You can also support the show by going to uh, brianmcclanahan.com. Click on the support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way. Click on the heart button under this video. If you're watching on YouTube, that's the super thanks button. You can throw a few pennies my way that way, or you can go to anchor.fm and subscribe. You can buy my logo and all kinds of cool stuff at brianmcclanahan.com. Click on the shop tab. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you like it. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review. Leave a comment on YouTube. That helps the algorithm. And that also gets people seeing the show and listening to the show. And send me those show requests. What do you want to hear? I want to see what you want to hear, right? And I did talk about a couple of listener-generated episodes this week. So hopefully that will uh, entice you to send me those show requests. I don't always respond to your emails, but I do get them and I do read them. So um, that's uh, that's comforting to know that you're not just going to be shouting in the wilderness, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna read what you uh, what you have to what you have to say, and of course uh, what you want to hear now. Let's talk about Jefferson Davis. So let me say this about McClanahan Academy. And you've, you've heard about it twice now. You got a little intro with it, and I've talked about it again. But I'm really proud of McClanahan Academy. Uh, I've got over 20 classes there now. And I would say that if, you, if you've taken any of those classes, hopefully you've walked away with a better understanding for the material and uh, a better understanding for American history than you did before you enrolled in those courses. Of course, I'm offering the new McClanahan Academy Live format, which uh, enrollment is closed in that for right now, but I will open it up again, possibly for the same class, maybe for a new class uh, next year. We'll see that again. Uh, but that's another way to deliver the content. However, most of the classes at McClanahan Academy, except for that one live class, are on demand. So you can download these classes. They're typically 12 to 13 hours of material, sometimes longer. And uh, you get all of the lecture notes. If there's PowerPoints, you get all the reading material. If I can, if I can get it to you, if I can't give you whole books, but um, if I can get it to you in some way, you're going to get that. You get audio and video files. They are great classes. 
And what I've done recently are give you reading classes. They're reading seminars. And so uh, I started this process last year. And this year we've gone through a number of great classes. And this class on Jefferson Davis is one of my favorites. And I want to talk about why I want to do a class on Jefferson Davis. We started this process this year with a class on John C. Calhoun, on a reading class, reading John C. Calhoun. And if you could say there were two intellectual figures in the 19th century South that deserve attention, one would be John C. Calhoun more than anyone else, and one would be Jefferson Davis. Now, Jefferson, of course, lived in the 19th century. John Taylor of Caroline was writing in the 19th century, and that's a hint. I'll be talking about them next year probably, in a class. But um, Davis and Calhoun, more than Jefferson and Taylor, and of course there's others, Albert Taylor Bledsoe, I mean, we could get into a whole slew of people in the 19th century we should be paying attention to in the antebellum South. But Davis and Calhoun politically, particularly when you get to the middle of the 19th century, which is the watershed point in American history of the two Southerners we need to focus on more than anyone else. And they're very similar. In fact, people might find this interesting. When I was in graduate school and uh, I took classes with, with Clyde Wilson, I pulled out the other day uh, a list of his recommended reading for a class that we took. And I had forgotten about this. But it's all, well, not all, a lot of it is Calhoun and Davis. And there's a lot of other stuff there too, but primary documents. Clyde Wilson was always interested in getting his students to read primary documents. And that's what I've done with these reading classes. I go through the primary documents because there's nothing better. There really isn't. You can get all the biographies of Jefferson Davis, you know, all the biographies of John C. Calhoun, all the biographies of Robert E. Lee, or we talked about Lee yesterday, whether it's Douglas Southall Freeman or, um, or Ty Sigley, if you want to read Ty Sigley. You can get all of that, which really isn't a biography of Lee. It's more just a polemic against Lee. But at the end of the day, the best thing to get is the primary documentation. And, you know, Forrest MacDonald, the great historian of the American colonial and early federal period, uh, talked about this. You know, he would, he would go read all the primary documentation, and his wife would read the secondary material, and she would tell him what the important books were, and then he would go read those. But other than that, he didn't waste his time with those too much. He was, in, he was immersed in these primary documents. And I think we forget that sometimes. You read, for example, Ty Sigley's book. It's all secondary sources. All his sources are secondary, for the most part. You read uh, Kevin Levine's book on black confederates. Again, it's one of the critiques I made of the book. Not a whole lot of primary material there at all, in particular. I mean, it's pretty embarrassing. It's light. It's a lightweight book. And this is what I find funny when people criticize my Founding Fathers Guide to the Constitution. I mean, that, that book is based entirely on primary documents. I, I don't really address much else at all. It's primary documentation. This is what the people actually said that were debating the Constitution. This is what they said it meant, right? Um, and so I did that also with how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America. Not too heavy on secondary sources. It's mostly primary documents. That is my focus when I go and do things. And that's why I want to do these reading seminars at McLean Academy. So Calhoun dies in 1850. And I've talked about Calhoun on this podcast many times. right? Calhoun dies in 1850, and he really is the most important political thinker in Southern history, and perhaps also 
in American history. Just a real giant. And so if you haven't gotten the reading John C. Calhoun class yet, you need that class to understand not just the American South, but also the United States and American political history and the American political tradition. He is better on it than anybody else. Okay, So then you have Jefferson Davis, who makes his really his most important speech um, outside of when he resigns from the Senate the same year Calhoun dies. 1850. And Davis was, of course, uh, you know, upset over the death of Calhoun. And the two are very similar. The two are similar because they said very similar things, not just about the Compromise of 1850, but about the South and American politics and the American Constitution. They were both reared on the old Republican Jeffersonian tradition. Now, Calhoun was alive during the time of the old Republican. And they didn't trust him. They didn't think Calhoun was a purist. They thought Calhoun was too much of a nationalist. Calhoun was uh, somebody who would do things politically, you know, politically you know, for political expediency. Uh, so they didn't. He wasn't a purist, but certainly Calhoun believed much of the same things as the old Republicans. Jefferson Davis followed Calhoun and. This is that third generation of Americans. Davis was part of that, what people like Avery Craven or James Randall would call the blundering generation. But you have to say something about Jefferson Davis. And this, when you get into the class, I want you to, to think about this. And um, in this class, again, the sale ends on the 31st. But uh, you can get it after that. You're just going to pay more money for it. But, so get that coupon, $60 off Davis. Davis was the same in 1850 as he was near the end of his life in the 1880s. Right? Davis was the same. He said the exact same things. That speech by Jefferson Davis on the Compromise of 1850 shows that Davis was always willing to compromise. And Davis, at the end of his life, said the exact same thing. Davis, however, understood the situation just as Calhoun did. This was not a, a war over ideology. It was a war over power. And Calhoun understood this. It's why he offered the Calhoun resolutions in the 1840s. It's why he consistently opposed having the slavery issue in the Congress because it was outside of the purview of Congress. And the only reason Congress was the Northern, Northerners were doing it, the only reason, was to aggrandize themselves. That was it. And Charles Sumner, this is why I did the class on radical Republicans, right? That's why I spent so much time on that class on Charles Sumner's Crimes Against Kansas speech because this is an outline of the northern domination of the United States. It's about power. They, The North wanted to control the government, and they couldn't. So this is why they talked about secession. I talked about Richard Kreitner earlier in this week on Monday. And he brings us up. It's why they wanted to do it. They were concerned about their perpetual political minority status, and so they came up with this issue of slavery. And this is when Calhoun, in 1837, gives the positive good speech, and he makes a point. He says, look, if you are correct, if this really is a moral issue, and slavery is a moral evil, then we have to. We are bound to get rid of it right now. And we can do it. Congress can do it right now. We've passed all this other unconstitutional legislation, we can get rid of slavery right now. Congress has the authority to do it. And you know what? No one was going to do it. Because 
No one was really interested in it as a moral issue. And this is exactly what Davis said in 1850. Now, he did say some people consider it a moral issue. He wasn't going to deny that there were moral abolitionists. There were people that thought slavery was a moral wrong. And at one point, by 1860, he does start using the term, well, we have a moral attack on slavery. There was that floating around out there in the 10 years between 1850 and 1860. But he also understood that this was feigned morality and not even that principled. That the real issue, again, was power and control and and northern domination of the Union. For what? Well, for their political economy. So that they can control the South. So that they can control the reins of power. In fact, Davis would make the case in 1850 and 1860, and of course, uh, and, and this is important, 1850-1860, he's in the Senate. Right uh, before that, he's a war hero. Mexican War. He's actually shot in the foot and continues to do his job. So, I mean, an amazing war hero too. I mean, Davis was someone who wasn't just a uh, a senator. De- Jefferson Davis was a well-educated uh, West Point man, war hero, uh, potential uh, candidate for governor of uh, Mississippi at one time. Uh, had a thriving plantation. Was Zachary Taylor's son-in-law briefly until his wife died. Um. Davis served as a Secretary of War. He wasn't just a member of you know government. He's, I mean, he, this was uh, in terms of the legislature. This was a man who really understood a variety of experiences in the general government and state government. He was uh, a, a, he was an important man because not because of what positions he had, but because of who he was. And people admired Jefferson Davis. Davis, unlike Lee, left a long track record of speeches because he gave those, and Lee didn't. So to get to Lee, you got to read letters and military correspondence and things like that. Calhoun, of course, also left behind the speeches, which is important. But Davis, I'll say this, so he's not in the Senate from 50 to 60. There's that break where he's Secretary of War. There's a so four-year period where he's in that. And then he goes back into, this, into the Senate. Um. So Davis has these two these two bookends to his time as Secretary of War, and then uh, during those bookends, he makes some pretty important speeches. In the class, I talk about this, the Compromise of 1850, and I spend a lot of time on it, because there is a cogency between that speech and what he says when he, rise, he writes his Rise and Fall of the Confederate Government, or his short history of the Confederacy. And that in the class, I, I talk about the short history of the Confederate States of America. And I do that because... That book is a nice summary of, um, of Davis and his positions that were there before the war and then, of course, after the war. He doesn't deviate. This is what I want you to get out of this class if you take it, and I hope you would. The lost cause is no myth. The lost cause wasn't fabricated after the war. The lost cause wasn't made up by Southerners to justify the act of secession or the war or to minimize the role of slavery because Davis does not do that at all. He talks a lot about slavery. A lot about it. I mean, he's very clear that the South wants to be able to bring slaves into the Western Territory, and that was the real issue. He thinks that's, and it was the real issue not because of slavery and a moral attack on slavery but because Northerners wanted that territory for themselves for political power. He makes it very clear, right? It's the occasion of the war, as he says, not the cause of the war. It's the occasion of the war.
There were other things more longstanding. And Davis makes the case throughout, the, throughout his time in the Congress, and then, of course, later in life, as is reflecting after the war is over, he did have the benefit of that, which Abraham Lincoln did not because Lincoln was assassinated. But Davis was able to take the time after the war is over and reflect and write about the war. Who knows what Lincoln might have said had he survived? I'm not so certain he would have agreed with the righteous cause myth. Lincoln might have said some things like that, but I'm not so certain about that. So Davis is, is saying the same thing in 1850s. He says in 18, 1880, right? I mean, it's the same thing. And um, what's really interesting about that, again, is how he paints compromise. He said, look, the South is always willing to compromise. The South did compromise. They compromised with Missouri because, you see, when Louisiana was brought into the Union, there was no restriction on slavery in that territory. You could have slavery anywhere. And so the South, by simply compromising on that, was a compromise. The North was the uncompromising section. And to simply say that they could dictate to Missouri, dictate to Missouri, what Missouri could do as a state was an egregious violation of the Constitution. Now, why did... Northerners want to do this? Well, they understood well, as Davis points out, with evidence that by bringing up the slavery issue, they would make it to where the South and the West would not be united as a large section of farmers, right? I mean, this is the point. Southerners and Westerners were farmers. And New Englanders, while agriculture was very important in New England, were moving in a commercial and industrial direction. And they wanted things like central banking. They wanted things like tariffs. They wanted things like federally funded internal improvements. Now, Westerners like those things too, by the way. But Westerners were also opposed to slavery. They didn't want blacks in their territory or their state. Southerners, of course, would bring slaves with them. And so this was an affront to white government in the West. And not just that, uh, it was labor competition. So Southerners, Davis makes clear, would not be actually extending slavery. They wouldn't be adding any slave territory because everything, every territory should be, it's common property in the United States, should all be open. If you bring your slaves there, well, you're not, you're not expanding, you're not, you're not actually adding to slavery, you're just removing slaves from one place and putting them in another. You haven't increased the slave population. You've just moved it. And he thought that this would eventually lead to the downfall of slavery. As you, as you diffused it over a broad swath of territory, eventually it would go away. That concentrations of slavery was what kept it going. And as you diffuse it, it would go away. Now, his point was always, though, that the South was always willing to compromise, the North was not. And he had a lot of evidence to this fact. And he talks about this quite a bit. We go into this in the class with the, with the famous Crittenden Compromise, a compromise that Jefferson Davis actually supported. Davis's position was clear. I'll take the Missouri Compromise line to the Pacific. Now, that meant, of course, California would be divided. And this is something that Zachary Taylor, as president, was not willing to accept. Uh, Southerners were talking about seceding over the issue. And, Dave, and uh, of course, Taylor said, if you do that, I'll send in the army. But Davis was certainly interested in this Missouri Compromise line to the Pacific, even cutting through California. However, I think that he probably would have compromised on that as well. And we know that Davis, as the chair of the committee of 13 in the Senate, designed to sift through all these compromise proposals, would have accepted the Crittenden Compromise. We know it because he wrote about it. He would have voted for it. But he voted against it 
because no Republicans would vote for it. So Davis essentially says the entire issue of the war is about political power. And from the time in 1850 to the time he gives his farewell address in 1861 in the Senate, he is consistent in that position when he's in Congress. And then, of course, we focus in the class, and I give you those speeches that he made, the 1850 speech, we talk about an 1860 speech, 1861, and then, of course, we get into his work as uh, the Confederate president. And I give you a couple of speeches there, right? His first inaugural and what's often called his second inaugural, which is um, the speech that he made when he was formally elected president of the Confederacy. His first inaugural is a provisional, provisional government. He's appointed, he's not elected, and he's giving a speech. But he is elected president, and he gives an inaugural address uh, under after that election. This is uh, this is uh, takes place later, and he was given a six-year term at that point. I also talk about a message to Congress in this uh, class, where just like Lincoln, Davis is giving messages to Congress, and uh, this message to Congress, of course, gets into all the atrocities that Northerners were committing on Southerners during the war, and there are a lot of things there, right? We also talk about Jefferson Davis's autobiography. He writes an autobiography that's published posthumously in a in a United States magazine, um, which is a really interesting part of his life. I mean, he's not just writing these political speeches and letters, of course. He's writing some substantial things like an autobiography or a history of the Confederacy or a history of the uh, rise and fall of the Confederate government. But it, it goes into American history before that point. Before you have the Confederacy, you got U.S. history all over it. So Jefferson Davis, because of this political cogency, I mean, because of his Calhoun-esque positions on so many things, he did believe in secession. He believed in nullification. He believed in all those things, as Calhoun did by 1850. Because of that, I think that we need to understand that you know Jefferson Davis, like John C. Calhoun, is one of the most important figures in American political history. And this is why we needed reading Jefferson Davis. It's a, it's a counterweight to the reading Abraham Lincoln, which we also did this year. Another great class. I go into where Lincoln comes from, and it's, and it's really against what Davis was saying. And uh, by the way, these two men were born not far apart in Kentucky, right? So they're coming from the same era, the same land, and they just deviate. One, one would go to Mississippi, one on to uh, Illinois, ultimately. But this is kind of the same thing where you know uh, Henry Clay and John uh, Tyler. John Tyler had the same kind of words to say for Henry Clay. We might have been born in the same area and breathed the same natal, natal air. He calls it the same natal air. But you're going to go down there and you're going to do what I, you're going to do, and I'm going to stay up here and I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And essentially, that's what happens with with uh, Davis and Lincoln. But Davis as president. It's often maligned. I, I, I don't do a lot with that because I think that um, there's more interesting things about Jefferson Davis, particularly Jefferson Davis as historian. And that's where I get into his short history on the Confederacy because that particular book is a nice summary of everything Davis believed about government and about American government and society and you know what was happening. It is a great little book, and I spend a lot of time on that one too. 
So if I could tell you, you know, if, if, if Jefferson Davis, again, Clyde Wilson thought Jefferson Davis deserved to be read, I agree, right? These primary documents are essential for understanding the Southern political position, understanding secession, understanding the South in the 19th century. You've got to go to the primary documents. You've got to read people like Calhoun and Jefferson Davis. It's the only way that you're going to have a firm grasp on these things. And that's why I wanted to do a class on Davis. Jefferson Davis, to me, um, is one of those figures in American history that really does deserve more credit than he gets. Of course, you know, the United States Capitol building, is he's responsible for that. Uh, the renovations, which made it look like it does today. He's responsible for uh, beefing up the American military. In fact, Jefferson Davis is really the reason why the South lost the war, because he made such a good military while he was Secretary of War. I mean, Davis is doing yeoman's work here to try to get these things done. And now he's just a racist slave monger. And of course, this is bad. This is this is really bad history. Uh, it's, it's a really bad position to have, uh, not based on historical reality. We're not trying to understand. We're just condemning at that point. And we've seen Davis's statue come down to Richmond, and there's Davis's statues come down all over the place. Can't have Jefferson Davis. But Jefferson Davis was one of the most important sons of American history. And I hope you take the class. I hope you get into it. And you really dive into Jefferson Davis and also Calhoun and uh, the radical Republicans and everybody else I've talked about this uh, this uh, particular uh, year at McLeanahan Academy. This is the last on-demand class for the year. There will be more next year, but this is it for this year. Get that coupon code Davis and uh, get that $60 off so that you can enjoy that class and um, really learn about Jefferson Davis and who he was. All right. I'll see you next week on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.